You're listening to the Study Legal English podcast, the world's first legal English podcast, helping lawyers and law students become fluent in legal English. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Study Legal English podcast. I am your host Louise and in the next few episodes we will be focusing on criminal procedure, looking at what happens before, during and after a criminal trial. In the last episode we heard from Christopher Kesling who spoke about his experience working as a criminal barrister and some of the differences between TV legal English and real legal English. Today, I'm going to give a brief introduction to the role of the criminal justice system, talking about its purpose and some of the key institutions involved in it. This will act as a useful foundation before going into more detail about criminal procedure in the next episodes. Some other useful episodes for you to listen to will be episodes 46, 47 and 48 to find out about the courts involved in criminal proceedings and the categorisation of criminal offences. So, let's get started. The criminal justice system is concerned with situations where someone has behaved in a way that harms or is offensive not only towards an individual victim, but rather to society as a whole. The behaviour or action is considered a wrong, either because it is morally wrong or because it is deemed to be a wrong by law. Because of the effect on society, criminal offences are prosecuted by the state. In England, criminal offences are prosecuted on behalf of the Crown, in other words, the monarch or Her Royal Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Which is why if you ever read the citations of criminal cases, you will notice that one party is always written as R. That's the letter R. For example, R against Jones. Why is this? Well, it's because R stands for Rex or Regina in Latin, and in plain English, that means king or queen. The other party, of course, is the defendant. In other words, the suspect or the alleged offender. The aim of the criminal justice system is to prevent crime, to punish crime and to reform offenders in order to protect the innocent and uphold the fabric of society. Therefore, the consequences of committing a criminal offence can be more severe than those of committing a civil offence. Depending on the seriousness of the criminal offence committed, the offender may face a criminal record and a punishment which can range from punitive sanctions such as fines and even the loss of freedom by imprisonment for a limited period or the serving of a life sentence. Because of these strong punishments, criminal procedure is, of course, quite different to civil procedure. For example, one of the most obvious differences is the standard and burden of proof. This relates to the degree of proof needed 
in order to find in favour of the claimant in the case of civil cases and to find the defendant guilty in criminal cases. In criminal cases, there is a very strong presumption of innocence. The defendant is considered innocent until proven guilty. This is enshrined in Article 6 of the Human Rights Act 1998 as one of the principles of the right to a fair trial. This section states that everyone charged with a criminal offence shall be presumed innocent until proved guilty according to law. Therefore, in order to successfully convict the defendant, the prosecutors must first satisfy the evidential burden by showing that there is evidence that the defendant committed the criminal act and intended to commit the criminal act. In Latin, you may have heard these words before, the guilty act is known as the actus reus and the guilty mind is known as the mens rea. In the majority of criminal cases, both of these elements must be present, with the exception of certain offences known as strict liability offences. These are types of offences which do not require proof of intention. For example, speeding can be a very good example of a strict liability offence. If you drive at 60 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone, you will automatically be guilty of an offence regardless of whether you meant to drive that fast or not. Continuing on with the burden of proof needed in criminal cases, provided that the prosecution can satisfy the evidential burden, they will secondly have to satisfy the persuasive burden. And this means that the prosecution must prove that the defendant is guilty of the charge brought against him or her beyond reasonable doubt. In other words, that we can say we are sure that the defendant committed the crime. If this cannot be shown, the defendant will be acquitted. The defendant will be found not guilty. Let's contrast this with civil cases. Civil cases mostly involve disputes between individuals or organisations and generally do not involve the state. Therefore, cases are brought by individuals. A claimant sues a defendant, with consequences such as the defendant being ordered to pay damages. The aim is not to punish, but rather to try to right the wrong between those specific parties. Normally, the burden of proof rests with the claimant, who must prove their case on a balance of probabilities. This is a much lower standard than the beyond reasonable doubt test used in criminal proceedings. Instead of being sure that the defendant is guilty, it is only necessary in civil cases to show that it is more likely than not that the defendant is responsible for the alleged harm caused. We'll be looking at the institutions of the criminal justice system after this very quick announcement. I'm interrupting the Study Legal English podcast for an important announcement. Do you want to get ahead in legal English? 
If you'd like to make faster progress with your legal English, you can sign up as a podcast pro member and get access to transcripts, quizzes, and much more. You can track your learning progress and even earn course certificates. Take your legal English to the next level. Visit studylegalenglish.com forward slash podcast dash pro. So, let's look at the institutions involved in the criminal justice system. Mainly, we have institutions which investigate crimes and others which prosecute crimes. The police in England are responsible for investigating the majority of crimes. They're responsible for collecting evidence and arresting and detaining suspects. And they have a number of powers which are mainly regulated by the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984. In England and Wales, there are around 200,000 people working full-time across 43 police forces. And it might surprise you to know that prior to 1986, the police force was also responsible for prosecuting criminal offences. However, of course, problems could arise if the same body is responsible for investigating and prosecuting crimes – And so, in an attempt to improve the criminal justice system, an independent and impartial body was established by the Prosecution of Offences Act 1985. And this new body began operating in 1986. It's called the Crown Prosecution Service, or CPS for short, and it's responsible for the prosecution of the majority of criminal cases. Some other bodies who investigate and prosecute crimes do exist. For example, the Serious Fraud Office, who investigate and prosecute serious or complex fraud and corruption cases, and the National Crime Agency, who fight serious and organised crime. The Crown Prosecution Service doesn't have any formal powers to investigate. However, it works quite closely with the police to advise them on what evidence will be needed in order to prosecute a case and in deciding whether or not the police should charge an alleged offender for summary-only offences and some either-way offences. The Crown Prosecution Service employs around 6,000 people and almost half of which are lawyers who are responsible for deciding whether or not to prosecute cases, preparing cases for court, and representing the Crown, in other words the monarch, in court. The head of the Crown Prosecution Service is known as the Director of Public Prosecutions, the DPP, who is appointed by the Attorney General. The Attorney General is the Chief Legal Advisor to the Crown, and oversees the Crown Prosecution Service and other bodies related to justice. Both the police and the Crown Prosecution Service follow a number of rules, directions and guidance notes laid down in various documents when they are investigating and prosecuting cases. For example, the Code for Crown Prosecutors sets out the basic principles to be followed by Crown Prosecutors when they make case decisions. The DPP's guidance on charging, the 5th edition CPS 
2013, sets out legal guidance prescribed by the Director of Public Prosecutions for both the Crown Prosecution Service and police in relation to charging. And the Criminal Procedure Rules govern the procedure that any participant involved in the criminal justice process must follow. Great. So, after this very quick introduction, let's take a look at some of that vocabulary. A very important difference that I must point out about the language used in criminal versus civil cases is that we use the word prosecution, prosecutor and to prosecute with criminal offences and instead the claimant and to sue or bring a case with civil cases. The prosecution can firstly refer to the carrying out of criminal legal proceedings against an accused person and secondly to the person or body who is actually carrying out the prosecution. A prosecutor refers directly always to the person or the organisation carrying out the prosecution and to prosecute is the verb, the action of bringing a case against a defendant in criminal proceedings. On the other hand, in civil cases, we do not have a prosecutor, but instead a claimant. The claimant is one of the parties involved in the case, the party who is bringing the case against the defendant. In civil proceedings, we don't normally say that the claimant is prosecuting the defendant, but rather the claimant is bringing the case against the defendant, or alternatively, the claimant is suing the defendant. So remember these important points. Don't get them mixed up. If you say that you were prosecuting a defendant, people will probably think you're talking about a criminal case and not a civil case. There are lots of exercises about legal English vocabulary for podcast pro members, so just head over to studylegalenglish.com forward slash episode 65 for all of your member benefits. So that's the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and learned something about criminal justice and procedure and institutions in England. Hopefully some new legal English vocabulary too. In the next episode, we'll be looking in more detail at what happens after a crime is allegedly committed and before the trial takes place. Before I go, I have a question for you. Do you think that the investigation and prosecution of crimes should be carried out by separate bodies? What do you think? Why do you think it? Send me a message to my email, louise at studylegalenglish.com or just find me on social media. Search for Study Legal English or Legal Englisher. That's Legal English with E-R on the end and join in the conversation there. So... Thanks for listening and see you next time.